verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, who you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you didn't, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into it, internal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this evening we come to the third of our four-part series on hell. We've seen that Jesus believes in hell. Hell is real. And hell involves the punishment of isolation from the goodness of God and pain. We've seen that real people go to hell. And today we're going to see that hell is forever. Our method has been only to study the words of Jesus himself. The series is entitled Hell from the Lips of Jesus. We stress that hell should only be spoken of with tears in the eyes. It is a stretching series, both a preacher and listener. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul had unceasing anguish over his own people. He spoke of their demise with tears. It is with tears in the eyes and love in the heart that we speak of hell. I reread this week two of the most famous sermons on the subject of hell, both delivered by Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and the Eternity of Hell's Torments. Listen to Edwards speaking in 1741. How dismal will it be to know assuredly that we never, never shall be delivered from dreadful despair to have no hope. When we wish that she might, we might be turned into nothing, but shall have no hope of it. When we would rejoice if we might have but any relief, but have no hope of it. 
How sinking would it be to endure such pain as we have felt in this world without any hopes and to know that we never should be delivered from it, nor have one minute's rest? How much more to endure the vast weight of the wrath of God without hope? We've considered Jesus' teaching from Matthew's gospel, and we've looked at part one of the gospel, including the Sermon on the Mount. We've considered part two of the gospel, and briefly, a couple of references there. We've looked in detail in Jesus' pronouncements of judgment in part three of Matthew's gospel. This week, part five, and the famous so-called parable of the sheep and the goats. Before we get to part five, Worth noting that in part four, Jesus speaks of hell on at least three occasions. And therefore, in every section of Matthew's gospel, there is extensive warning of hell from the lips of Jesus. And even here in section five, where we're confined primarily to the the so-called parallel of the sheep and the goats, he also speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth three times, of outer darkness once, of the door being shut, and of the dreadful verdict from God, I never knew you. It's hard to know what to say to the person who says Jesus doesn't speak of judgment and hell, other than that they follow a different Jesus to the Jesus of the Bible, a fantasy Jesus of their own concoction, an imagined comfort blanket Jesus, perhaps like the teddy, they may take to bed to ward off frightening imaginations. For the rest of our time, however, we're going to spend in the so-called parable of the sheep and the goats, and we're going to consider the glorious return of Jesus, the decisive division of Jesus, and the eternal judgment of Jesus, the glorious return. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the groats. Now, the the phrase or title, the Son of Man, is a title. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's taken primarily from the book of Daniel. And there God gathers before one who is described as one like a son of man, all the nations, and they come before him in judgment. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And here in verse 31, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us that the son of man will come in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will be seated on his glorious throne. It's true to say that the Son of Man is already enthroned. Following his resurrection at the end of the gospel, Jesus announces, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, says, God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion. In the book of Revelation, we read, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash, with hair white and eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, and a voice like the roar of many waters spoke. So Jesus is already enthroned. I guess it's possible for us to have too small a view of Jesus, even today. 
I grew up in a time when you could still make an appointment to see your bank manager, and he might even be eager to see you. Mine actually never was for some reason or other. But you know, some people have a view of Jesus like that, that I book in to see him when I'm a moment of particular need, Uh, rather like Aladdin with a genie in the bottle or Harry in the Philosopher's Stone having an owl to call on in times of trouble. But whatever we may think, Jesus is currently enthroned in all his glory. And on that day, we will see him as he is. He will appear on his glorious throne. He will be seated in the place of judgment. And he will gather all nations before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Come across that poem by W.E. Henley, Invictus, Inconquerable, Undefeated. My head is bloody and unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. No, W.E. Henley, that is not the case. You will meet him in judgment. And God would say to any who believe that somehow they will avoid that day, that we have bought the second oldest lie in the book, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, when the devil says to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. There will be no judgment. Uh, There will. And God has set a day when he will judge the world by one man, and he's given evidence of this by raising Jesus from the dead. At the glorious return of Jesus, all Henley-esque delusions will be scattered, and he will gather the nations before him. The glorious return. But then there is this decisive division, and this so-called parable captures it beautifully. It's not actually a parable. Technically, everybody calls it a parable. It isn't really. Jesus is speaking about a real event. Imagery is used, but it's not a whole kind of story to depict something else. It is reality that is being spoken about, and there are a couple of metaphors to do with sheep and goats. But Jesus will separate us out, and it is binary, and there are only two options. People go either to the left or the right. There's no gradation. It is immediate. There's no waiting chamber or correction center or place of reformation. It's one way. There's no return. It's eternal. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the imagery of shepherd and sheep is a brilliant one. At the end of each day, the flock of sheep and herd of goats that have been grazing together is sorted. It's like the parable of the net in Matthew 13, also speaking of judgment. The net is drawn in. And the fish are sorted. It's like the wheat and the weeds at harvest time. The harvest is gathered. The fruitful from the useless is sorted. And a day is set and the clock will strike and Jesus will return. And of course, the shepherd could tell at a glance which is which. It's obvious. Indeed, they could do it by feel in the dark. And one goes one way. 
and the other the other to an eternal end. We ask on what basis, and verse 37, you'll notice, speaks of those on the right, the sheep, that is, as the righteous. Then the righteous will answer him. And verses 35 to 36 speak of their acts of righteousness. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. These acts are to have given food and water to the Son of Man, to have offered hospitality, clothing, to provided medical and physical needs. And that leaves the righteous perplexed. When did we do this? And in verse 40, Jesus responds, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That leads many to suggest that the basis of division or judgment lies in general good works of kindness and compassion to those less well-off than ourselves in this life by any and everybody. Decent deeds, charitable acts, financial contributions, an OAP to Christmas lunch, a gift to help a London child, pro bono work in Tower Hamlets, just love, mercy ministries. But that's not quite what Jesus is getting at. And that's obvious from verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Not only does the judge refer to those assembled, all of them on his right, as my brothers and sisters, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. That phrase, the least of these, is summarizing Jesus' favorite way of talking about his disciples in Matthew's gospel. He frequently calls them these little ones. So those who are brought to the eternal kingdom, prepared from the foundation of the world, are those who have, if you like, quite unselfconsciously, naturally, without a second thought, lined up with, served, and associated selflessly with the people of the Lord Jesus. They are Christians. They are those who have come to Jesus to be clothed in the righteousness that he alone can provide, of which we will hear next week. And those who, having been clothed in righteousness, having had relationship with the Lord Jesus, recognize other Christians as brothers and sisters, and quite self, unselfconsciously, quite naturally, have engaged in acts of love and association with them. Those who go to the left are those who are told to depart into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. They are those who have distanced themselves from the people of Jesus, who will have nothing to do with Jesus and his people, who choose not to receive Jesus or line up with Jesus. So do you see the division actually takes place over our response to God and to the Lord Jesus? Will we continue to shun him, reject his offer of forgiveness and love and kindness, 
and then shun his people and have nothing to do with them? Or will we accept his offer of being declared right with God as a result of his death on the cross for our forgiveness and then associate openly and unselfconsciously with the people of God? There will be a decisive division. A number of years ago, the famous interviewer Jeremy Paxman interviewed Bill Gates, the super wealthy businessman. It was a fascinating interview, and at one point, Paxman made rather a fatuous aside. He suggested that Gates need have no fear or concern or anxiety about meeting God on the last day, as if God himself might be somewhat envious of Bill Gates, his wealth and his status. Well, as far as Jesus is concerned, it doesn't matter how powerful we are, how prosperous, how popular, how prestigious our wealth, the stamp on our passport is immaterial, our creed, color, race, religion is of no bar. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. In a sense, our views are of no consequence. We will be summoned before Jesus in judgment, whether we like it or not, believe it or not, or are ready for it or not. And that, of course, has to be right. For if there is one supreme God and one supreme creator, then there is just one ruler, and that one ruler is the one judge. And so we see just how serious rejection of Jesus and of God is. Consider it for a moment. Every next breath given by him. Each good gift provided by him. Every privilege and provision. His. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the friendship we enjoy, the job at which we labor, the health we have been given. And in God's world, to have nothing to do with the eternal God, what appalling offense. The final return, the decisive decision, and the eternal end. You can see that Jesus speaks of an eternal end, both for those on the right and those on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. This is beautiful, isn't it? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, Worth noting that there is not symmetry in those two statements. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So does eternal mean eternal? 
This view has been around for quite some time, but since the 1980s, it's been popularized by a number of authors, Clark Pinnock, E.W. Fudge, Philip Edgecombe-Hughes, and the very well-known and great Bible teacher, John Stott. Some, with more rigor and careful argument than others, more lately, much less rigorously, a chap called Rob Bell has written a book called Love Wins. And in one form or other, each one of these authors has put forward a suggestion that is described either as annihilationism or conditional immortality. Annihilationism suggests that on the day of judgment, those on the left will quite simply be obliterated, hence annihilationism. Conditional immortality suggests that our souls are not by nature immortal and that only those who have trusted in Jesus will rise to immortality, hence conditional immortality. There are varying degrees to each of those views, but that's the essence of it. They've been around for a very long time, but have come to the fore more in the last 40 years. And the argument is made both that the word translated eternal does not necessarily carry the sense or implication of endlessness and or that it will be unjust or unworthy of God to consign a person to endless punishment. Strictly speaking, the word ionos, which we translate as as, is eternal, means literally belonging to the age to come. And in that sense, John Stott and others are right. But repeatedly when Jesus speaks of hell in detail, here in Matthew's gospel, it comes with a sense of endlessness. John Stott was a real heavyweight. We owe so much to him. I had the enormous privilege of meeting him on three occasions. I remember him coming to visit as I was a very new rector once, and he sat just over there. You can imagine me standing up in to preach a sermon and seeing that the great John Stott was here. Uh, nearly, I had to remind myself that Jesus was there the week before. <laughs> my predecessor, Dick Lucas, described John Stott as my mentor, his mentor. John Stott's great friend, Jim Packer, wrote a rebuttal of his views. I've referenced it at the bottom under the conclusion there, Evangelical Annihilationism in Review. And Packer points out these following matters. Jesus speaks repeatedly of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Only those who exist can weep and express frustration and pain. Nowhere in the Bible does death signify extinction. In the book of Revelation, we read the smoke of their torment rises forever. You can't have smoke without fire and with eternal smoke must be eternal fire. Those consigned to hell are described as having no rest day or night and being shut away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Only those who exist can be shut out and only those who exist can have no rest. Most conclusively, Packer, in a different article, I'm sorry I couldn't find it, it's buried somewhere in my study, takes us to verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. 
Packer makes this point. There is a self-conscious parallelism between the eternal life and the eternal punishment. Leon Morris, another great one, puts it like this. The more meaning we put into eternal life, the more meaning we must put into eternal punishment. Personally, I think Stott was wrong in this one area. Is it fair? I suppose it depends how serious we consider sin to be. It depends what we understand about the ongoing nature of rebellion beyond death. And it depends on what we understand to be the need for retribution, that is just punishment because crime is so serious, regardless of any reformation. There is a difference between one kind of offence and another. We all know that to be true. I walk across the street, I slap you in the face. That's a simple matter of assault. I walk into the CEO's office, I slap her in the face. That's slightly more serious. I find myself in court, I jump from the dock, scramble onto the judge's bench and slap him in the face. That is more serious still. I decide to place myself in the crowd at a major civil event. I break from the crowd, jump into the monarch's chariot and slap him in the face, that is really very, very serious indeed. Edward Donnelly, in what I think is the best book I've come across, popular book on heaven and hell, uses example, I'm sorry to put this to you, of chopping up a worm, chopping up a small animal and dismembering a child. They are of different orders. And sin is rebellion against our creator. And our creator is eternal. And sin is shaking my fist at God, the everlasting God. And sin is refusing to acknowledge King Jesus. And what is an appropriate punishment for so dreadful an offense? I don't think there's any instance where the level of sentence is tied to the duration of offense, is there? How long would it take you to murder somebody? Five seconds? How long would you expect to get? Forty years? And there's no indication anywhere that a person ceases to sin in hell or that the resurrection to judgment changes their character. And there's every reason to suppose that their rebellion and refusal to repent continues into eternity as long as they do. Certainly the rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus shows no indication of change. And retribution, so unpopular amongst our lawyers and in our legal system today, matters You ask somebody who has had a relative murdered or has been subjected to appalling abuse. Punishment needs to happen because punishment needs to happen, regardless of reformation. By way of a conclusion, allow me to quote to you from Edward Donnelly's Excellent chapter on everlasting destruction. 
hell. Absolute poverty. To perish means that you as a being will become ever more degraded, more contemptible, more lonely, surrounded by devils, the damned and wicked humans. They will hate you. You will hate them. Everything good in you will be taken away. Everything bad let loose. Agonizing pain. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Jesus is teaching. The undying worm is something foul, endlessly gnawing at hell's inhabitants, eating at them continually, giving them no rest. This probably refers to conscience, which should have been the sinner's curb on earth, but becomes the whip that must lash his soul in hell. Why didn't I listen? Why didn't I take advantage of all those opportunities? It's my own fault that I am here. Angry presence. God is close to those in hell. He's present there in his anger. Those who are in hell will see God in his holy fury compelled to gaze at their judge, unable to shut their eyes, the sight of him intolerably painful will be their condemnation and their punishment. Let's pray together. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our Father in heaven, we know we don't deserve it. We praise you for sending Jesus to rescue us from hell. We thank you in his name. Amen.